On tonight's show, we are so honored to have Tom Shimmer, an author of numerous books, including his newest book, Redefining Student Accountability, a proactive approach to teaching behavior outside the gray book. He is also a former classroom teacher, an administrator, a district level leader, and he's pretty much done it all. Tom is also the host of the Tom Shimmer podcast, a podcast about learning, leadership, and life. And it primarily focuses on current topics in the K-12 educational system. I was fortunate enough to be a guest on Tom's podcast, and I had an absolute ball. Tom has presented throughout North America and in over 20 countries throughout the world. Tom received his undergrad degree from Boise State University and his graduate degree from the University of British Columbia. I could go on and on about Tom, um, but we're going to get right to it, have a great conversation with him tonight, and hopefully you'll learn much, much more about the man who is just influencing our profession throughout this world. And so without further ado, I'd like to welcome to a conversation with Brian, Tom Shimmer. Tom, welcome to the show. Oh, happy to be here, Brian. Uh, you get to turn the tables on me this time and uh, enjoyed having you on my podcast. And uh, now uh, reciprocation is uh, is only fair. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate it. And I also appreciate you getting up so early this morning. It's uh, a little bit earlier than my time. But as you said, you get up a little bit earlier anyway. So it's, it's all good. So um, as you might know, at the beginning of each one of my podcast time, I asked my guests to talk a little bit about their professional journey, their personal story, um, just so my my audience can get to know the real Tom Shimmer. So who is Tom Shimmer? <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. At 55 years old, Brian, I'm still trying to figure out who I am. But um, my professional journey began in 1991. Uh, I was a trained high school history teacher. Um, I spent seven years as a classroom teacher. Now, relevant to the conversation I think we're going to have today is that I was an incredibly traditional high school history teacher. I always tell people the stereotypical high school history teacher minus the costumes is what you should envision with me. Really? Um, and most importantly, uh, very traditional in my assessment and grading practices. I was the zero guy, the late penalty guy, the hammer kids in the grade book guy. So it's somewhat ironic uh, what I do today. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, I reached a point in my career where I just became frustrated. So seven years as a classroom teacher, 11 years as a campus administrator. And it was during that time as an administrator, when I was an assistant principal in a middle school, uh, I was teaching three out of six periods each day. And I was actually teaching uh, eighth grade math at the time. I almost became a math teacher. That was that was kind of on the radar as well. So eighth grade math was kind of in my wheelhouse. Sure. And uh, and in that capacity, I kind of discovered, you know, assessment. There was a renaissance with assessment practices in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Uh, so I discovered that. I started to change my practices. And, you know, 20 years later, the rest is history. So that's the 33 years. I spent 11 years as a campus administrator, two years at central office, and now 13 years as a full-time author, speaker, consultant. So that's the 33 years. But that pivotal moment, kind of 2003, 2004, 2005, that was a pivot point in my career, which really had me do a complete 180 uh, in terms of the type of educator I was. 
That's amazing. Let's let's go back a little bit. We'll we'll, we'll sure. jump to the professional piece, but let's go back a little bit about when Tom Shimmer was young. Um, Tom Shimmer, <laughs> as as a student, as, as a person, as a learner, um, yeah. you know, talk a little bit about your your journey as a student and and were you the traditional great academic student? I wasn't really. Um, you know, it's it's it, there's there's so much irony in my life. Uh, I, you know, I keep I'm probably going to say this word a lot, but um, being someone who has now authored or co-authored nine books, um, when I was in the seventh grade, I was assessed at at uh, a fifth grade reading level, and uh, I was not a struggling student in the sense that I was on the verge of failure, but I was a mediocre student. I was just kind of up the middle. I did enough to pass. I, I was, you know, wasn't barely passing. I, I just kind of, you know, C's, some B's were in my wheelhouse, but I didn't have a lot of passion for school. And so it's an interesting story that, you know, my mom, of course, was concerned, my dad too, and and my family, my sister, who's 10 years older than me, uh, they're all concerned that here's Tom, um, you know, seventh grade, but reading at a fifth grade level, what do we do? And so my mom and my sister hatched a plan. And when I was in the seventh grade, they bought me a subscription to Sports Illustrated because oh, wow. they knew I loved sports. Sure. And, uh, you know, I've never written into Sports Illustrated. I probably should have, you know, all of those, it's just the story, story because yeah. I would read those those Sports Illustrated's cover to cover. And it taught me a couple of lessons. Uh, one is it's never too late. Yep. Uh, and two, it doesn't matter what you're reading. Yeah. That That I read cover to cover and I was reading, you know, back in the day about, you know, Julius Irving. I was reading about Magic Johnson. I was reading about Joe Montana. I was reading, you know, Sports Illustrated. I was reading and just consuming it because I love sports. And that sort of brought me back sort of from 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 that and gave me a little bit of a passion for reading is I didn't love reading every book, but I loved I loved reading. So that sent me, in, you know, into high school. I was a good student. I wasn't a great student, um, but you know, a lot of it was, had to do with with sports. I was playing a lot of sports. I played every season. I played every sport. Uh, so my parents were reasonable with their expectations around what I could fit in, what I had time for, because I was playing football and basketball and baseball and soccer and even a little bit of track and field. So all of that was consuming my life. So I was a good student. I wasn't a great student, and I wasn't really passionate about learning or anything like that. So it's it's interesting to me how my career has evolved because I absolutely love this profession now and always have for, for the most part since I started. Um, but yet it's it's kind of ironic that the way I was as a student. You know, it's always interesting um, to hear people's stories. And I love hearing different stories because it just kind of shows you how we get here and we all get here with you know, different paths. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it just, I heard somebody the other day say something like, you know, one moment in time can change the trajectory of a person's life and yeah. think about your mom and your sister what if they didn't buy you sports illustrator get you i mean you, it was really that connection and and although you didn't love reading you love reading sports illustrated and so you, you never know how that could have changed if that didn't happen yeah no it's so true those the, there are those and we only seem to know those in retrospect right we look back and say wow that was a that was a pivotal moment. And that was a really great decision or a really interesting thing that they came up with. They knew my passion for sports. I love playing sports and, and for them to sort of get, and, and, and that's not a very traditional view. Like, you know, most, many would think the traditional view would be go to the library, get a bunch of books and have, you know, Tom read a bunch of books, but instead they thought outside the box. I mean, we're talking 1979 here, Brian, 1980, yeah. 
Um, you know, this is outside the box thinking in terms of reading and, uh, and got me the sports illustrated magazine. It came every week and, uh, I was all over it. I read every inch of that magazine and all of a sudden I started to become a reader again. Didn't mean, you know, I didn't turn into a straight A student or anything like that in high school, but, but I became a very competent student and, uh, and, and the, the rest is history. So you're right. These pivotal moments are so interesting to look back as you trace back in your life. Uh, different decisions that are made that really could have changed the outcome of your life. Sure. In my new book that I have coming out, I have this um, this attribute I, I, I talk about in terms of curiosity. And how do we pique people's curiosities? How do we help, help them make a connection somewhere? And that actually piqued your curiosity, Sports Illustrated. Sure did. You know, so yeah, it sure did. Hey, when you talk about um, being that traditional teacher, mm -hmm. um, was it just because that's all you knew? Um, and yep. that's how you were socialized in, into the profession. Did you, did you, was there any, ever any um, kind of this disquiet, this angst that you, you weren't really doing something that you were supposed to do? Or you just felt like that's just what I'm going to do because that's the way I, I, I was socialized. I think it's better now, but back in the day, you know, we didn't get any training on assessment. You know, yeah. Ironically, again, there's that word. Um, one of the most important aspects of teaching and learning is assessment. And yet I had no training in assessment. So of course I start teaching in 1991 and, and what do I do? I think back in my own autobiography and I think, what did my history teachers do to me? How did they assess me? So I, so you just reach back. I reach back into 1983, 1984, and I pull those practices into 1991. That's how this, these legacies continue. It's yeah. like they, they almost leapfrog, right? So I began teaching. Um, and, and here's the truth. I became a teacher because I wanted to coach. I wanted to do something in sports. I wanted to be a professional athlete or if if I was not, that was going to happen. I wanted to do something in sports and it was either coaching or broadcasting. And I decided I loved the competition. So I wanted to get into coaching and I thought, well, what better way to become a coach than to become a teacher. So I actually got into teaching because I wanted to coach, not because I loved the profession. I learned to love the profession once I entered it. But at the time I wanted to become a coach. So That's for right me, right I, right I, right yeah. Right. So yeah. when you say, you know, you got into the profession because you wanted to coach. Did you not yeah. equate coaching with teaching at the time? No, not at all. No. Not at all. I, I was, I, I didn't, I, you know, I'm 18, 18 yeah. years old when I decided I wanted what I wanted to do. I didn't equate the two quickly. You know, you realize when you are a coach, you are a teacher. Yeah. Um, little different though, because you've got a, a field or a gym full of volunteers. They've all chosen to play football. Whereas in school, for the most part, until kids get older, we force them against their will to take the subjects they're enrolled in. Right. So they don't, they're forced to take science. They're forced to take math. So it is a different audience. However, it is still teaching. You're absolutely right about that. So I was, I did what my history teachers did to me and did to us. I thought at the time, and I think this is something that's very important, is that when people use poor practices like I did, no one was more traditional than me. I hammered kids in the grade book, and I was kind of mean about it, honestly. Um, when people use those practices, they often use them because they truly believe that that is in the best interest of the kids they're working with. Now, they could be wrong, like, and I was wrong. But it wasn't malicious in its intent. It was, I think this is what kids need. And so once I entered the, so for six years of my career, I was an absolutely hardcore, traditional grader. There was no one who was tougher than me in the schools I worked in. I had no compassion. I just absolutely torched kids in the grade book. 
1997, that's when my life changed, Brian. And and what happened in, in March of 1997 was my, my first child was born. My daughter, Samantha, was born in, in March, March 20th, 1226 AM, uh, 1997, she, she, was, she was born. And that was a pivotal moment for me because I started to, a little bit in the spring, but more so into the fall of 97, I started to hear myself talking to my students and the exchanges I would have with them. And it made me incredibly uncomfortable because I immediately started to have this knot in my stomach thinking, what if my, what if my daughter's teachers say that to her? Now, she's just an infant, but I'm already reacting to the fact that I've become a parent. Now, just for the audience, I you know you don't have to become a parent to be a great educator, but I needed to become a parent to be a good one. Um, I had to to sort of see what I was doing through the lens of my own child. But then, as I often tell the story, I spent another seven years in what I now refer to as my assessment purgatory because I knew I needed to be different, but the problem was I didn't know what to do differently. So yeah. I spent yeah. another seven years toiling in that. And it was it was the fall of 2003, 2004, that school year, 0304, when I started to think about how I was going to change my assessment practices and the rest is history. That's where it went from there. So it was in the career when I realized that I was completely off track. I needed to figure out what I needed to do differently. I couldn't figure it out. So I spent you know 13 years as a pretty traditional teacher. I wasn't as dispositionally, I wasn't as hardcore for those seven years that I described after my daughter was born, but I was kind of stuck. I didn't know what to do. Uh, and that's and that's kind of where it, where it went to. Your story is not so unlike a lot of other really successful people who started off in one, you know, kind of mindset and, and way of doing things, but then they they changed, they evolved. And that's that's the the beauty of of being a human is is evolving because you know, I, I heard somebody, I think it was Muhammad Ali said something like, and it's, I don't know if it's the exact quote, but it was like, if I'm the same person at 50 that I was at 20, I've wasted 30 years of my life. So true. You know, and so I think that's uh, the, the beauty of what you've done. And 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 since you've evolved, think about all the people, all the, the kids, all the adults that you have changed because of your expertise on assessment and how that really is a change because assessment when people my age your age when they hear the word assessment or test you know what they think of course we're going to be judged you know mm -hmm. they, they, they my, my heart even today when i hear the word assessment or test my heart starts to you know flutter because i get nervous because of the way it was done to me when i was younger so that, that's so true. I mean, we 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 equate the word assessment with evaluation. Um, and and when we were in school, you know, I base it on my own experience as a teacher, but also when we were in school, every move you made got scored. Yeah, you got points, right? And so yeah. so assessment became about point accumulation as opposed to looking at the depth of learning. So that that put you know every time and and if you dropped points those points were over that's why we had to go to our teachers and ask for extra credit because whenever you lost points on an assessment those points were finished like there was no way to make up for them because they were in you got a 7 out of 10 or you got a 12 out of 20 and there was no way to make up for those so you had to go to your teacher and ask for extra credit to kind of make up for those deficiencies so it just became this anxiety riddled kind of like high stakes every moment counted and it was uh, it was relentless at the time for sure. Yeah. Before we get to your your new book and it's behind me, you'll see that it's all it's all yeah, I see it. sticky noted up. 
<laughs> um, you talked about coaching and sports and before we get to your book, because I think it's really a, a great book. But um, what are your what are your favorite sports? What do you like to do? What what did you play? What were you good at? What were you not good at that you that you liked? Um, what did you ultimately? Well, Brian, to- I, I, Brian, I was good at everything. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to I always I always say to people like I I played sports. I'm Canadian. Uh, and so the coaching and the uh, the opportunities in the 70s and 80s were not the same in Canada as they were in the United States. And I'm not saying I would have been anything, but but I my favorite sport growing up was baseball. Uh, right. I was a really good pitcher, uh, a pretty good hitter. And uh, baseball was the sport that I wanted to uh, go to college for. I wanted to I wanted a scholarship. Um, and I, I had, you know, I, I'm not going to exaggerate this, but, you know, growing up in, in my teenage years, I did have some tryouts. I went, one time went to a tryout uh, with a Yankee scout and I was, oh. I was 15 and it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a kind of a cattle call, right? It wasn't just sure. for me, Still. but they, but they came to me and they said, you know, we'd like you to go to high school. And if you, if you could go to high school in Oregon, we've got some coaching for you. We think we could do it. Now, my parents weren't going to send me to Oregon for sure. the last two years of high school and we couldn't afford all of that stuff, but that, you know, so there were, there were opportunities for baseball. I played football. Um, I was a quarterback um, for the most part, played a little bit of tight end, but mostly played quarterback and I was a kicker. And that's actually what I went on I, because I, I played soccer and I was a goalie. Um, I learned to kick the ball out of the goal, out of the goal area, the 18 yard box. Yeah. And, uh, and so they lined us all up in, in uh, ninth grade, they lined us all up on the football field and said, okay, everybody needs to kick a football. And I kicked it the furthest. So, uh, I also, from being, yeah, <laughs> I, I said, you're it. And so I kicked field goals. I punted and I was the quarterback of our high school football team. And, uh, and punting is how I ended up at, at Boise state. That's how I got my scholarship, uh, was, was as a punter at Boise state, but I played basketball. Um, I loved basketball and I know, of course you, your, your basketball background is, is well known. Um, but I loved basketball. Uh, I, I loved everything about the competition, uh, and every sport to me really added to, to the, you know, the other sports. So when I, by playing football and getting hit kind of adds some toughness to you, right? Um, basketball, the, the fitness element of that and, and the quickness and, and having to be alert and, and watching, you know, whether it's defensive rotations or, or boxing out, or just keeping an eye on your, your, your offensive player that you're guarding. It's all of that, right? Baseball was the mind thing. Like what I loved about pitching was, was trying to, trying to outthink the hitter and and trying to throw them off right so every sport i played really contributed and it's really you know in, in a lot of ways it's kind of sad when i look at youth sports today and i think about how early kids specialize and and all these travel teams and they're playing year round and I'm like you're missing out your body needs a break from that too right you can't throw a baseball 12 months out of the year you've got to give that rest you can't take hits 12 months out of the year you can't you know there's all sorts of things and you know this as an athlete as well that i miss the days of the well-rounded athlete that played all this i know they still exist but so many parents and so many kids are getting their get, getting into specialization before middle school and and they've got that one track of that one sport and yes they become very good at that sport but i think they're missing out on a lot of things i think the other piece is the injury piece and i, yeah. I a lot of parents saying my kid is getting injured or my kid is getting burned out because they're tired That's of this sport, right That's and so right. i think um, your point is well taken that, that, you know, when we were younger, we played everything and, and we didn't play it year round. We just played different sports and, uh, enjoyed it. I mean, I wasn't good at every sport, but I enjoyed just the competition. Yeah, for sure. And, and one of the things that, you know, like athletes are better today 
than they were a generation ago. I mean, everyone right now, when you look at athletically, um, they are superior each generation. And that's how, how we evolve as human beings, right? But that's just the elite players who specialized. I think about all the players that didn't go pro, all the players that didn't get scholarships. You maybe could have got a scholarship in football or baseball or track and field, but you never played it because you specialized in AAU basketball since you were seven years old. So that that's the part. Like when you see p kids that I think what happens is the allure is that the specialists who are elite, they end up making it like they become these phenoms, whether it's They're LeBron very, or very other players, right? But yeah. it's the other play, it's the other players that don't make it who specialized at seven, eight years old. It's like you could have had a career maybe in a different sport, but it never happened because you never chose to play that sport. So it, it's an interesting phenomenon. I mean, um, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but uh it, it is a shame that that growing up kids don't really sort of go from season to season because I used to love like I used to get tired of football and then it's like okay, it's basketball season, this is great, yeah. and then a little bit of burnt out. Now it's baseball season, and it just it just the transitions for me were always making made the sports exhilarating because it was time to do something different. In Canada, were you a big hockey person? As, as... I never played hockey. Um, I know, I know, we are. I know we are required by law to pay excessive <laughs> amounts of attention to anything related to hockey. Um, but no, we couldn't afford it. You know, I remember going home one day. Um, we weren't. You know, I didn't. I don't want to. Again, I don't want to be hyperbolic here. I didn't grow up in poverty, but but I lived a lower middle class lifestyle. My dad worked in a foundry. My mom sold shoes at a department store. We always had food. We always had, but we didn't have a lot of money. We we were not rolling in it. Let's just put it that way. So. You know, for me, growing up, hockey was a very expensive sport because you needed a lot of equipment. Whereas with soccer, you just need soccer cleats and, cup, you know, shin pads and you're good to go in shorts or basketball. You just need some shoes like and then when I got into football, of course, the school has all the supplies. So for me, it was it was the equipment. And then my dad working in a foundry, he had to leave for work every day at, you know, 615. He wow. worked left early, left at 615, yeah. got, got home at 330, which was great. But he left early. So the problem was he could never get me to practice. Hockey practices are early in the morning at the rink, and we couldn't get there. So it was the money. It was the time. Um, so I just I know it's embarrassing as a Canadian to say I don't really know how to skate, um, but I don't. Uh, I know how to ski. So I, I think that's my recovery is I, I do know how to ski. I'm a pretty good skier, uh, but I don't know how to skate. But yeah, I love hockey. I mean, I, I do love watching hockey and of course it's part of our country's the ethos of our country we we love the sport but i just never played it played street hockey that's what i did <laughs> yeah yeah as as you chat and, and 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 share your story it really just you know reminds me and again you say you didn't grow up in poverty but it just reminds me of these opportunity gaps that we have throughout um you know our world and how you know depending on um, you know, the finances or the the experiences that parents are able to afford, um, it can really change um, or enhance the trajectory of a kid's life because they have, like you said, you know, playing different sports actually really gives us an opportunity to do different things and meet different people and experience different, you know, highs and lows of, of you know, kind of a microcosm of life. All these opportunities um, give us the, the, the chance to find our our strength, our passions, our our gifts. You, um, you know, Brian, you you just made me think of something that I've never thought before, which is, if I was growing up today in the situation I was in with my family, I'm not sure that I would have got a scholarship. I'm not sure I would have had those opportunities because there's no way my parents could have afforded 
yeah. um, AAU basketball. We couldn't have afforded travel teams for baseball. There's no chance that we had the financial means to, to pay for all of that. Yeah. And so in a way I was fortunate that I grew up in an era where you didn't have to do that. I mean, we had, you know, there were, there were summer games teams, what we call provincial teams, but there was no like year round club teams that, that people were playing for. And I'm not sure, you know, I, I just, it, I've never thought of that before, but thinking about, you know, what if I was, if I was in my situation growing up in 2023 or say 2020 or 2010 or whatever, I'm, I'm not sure I would have had the same opportunities athletically because I just don't think we could have afforded it. So you, I think you are spot on with the the opportunity gaps that uh, you look at some sports like tennis yeah. where you think all I need is a racket. It's very but man, tennis is expensive. Yeah. Golf, another sport, you know, and how many great athletes are never given the opportunity to participate in those sports because of the financial barrier and the opportunity gap. I, I, I think that's a really great point, Brian. Well, I think this is a perfect segue because I think that's why our work is so important because we have yeah. to help kids become literate and numerate because um, this mm -hmm. gives them an opportunity to to do whatever they want in terms of their 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 eventual lives and careers. And so, Tom, you've written, like you said, nine books and, and all of them are great. Um, this book is a little bit different from what you have traditionally um, written about, um, although you, we, we talk about assessment and that's really important in your book. Um, but this idea of, of, you know, redefining student accountability and that idea of separating, you know, academic, you know, grades um, from, you know, behavior attributes. Talk a little bit about why you decided to write this book here at this time, because um, I really found it fascinating. I don't think it's going to be really well received. And I think it's important, especially with when we talk about, you know, kids being employable some of those skills and behaviors, those are the skills that are going to keep them employable. You, you said something about the academic in your book, you know, academics will get you into college, but the behaviors are going to keep you in and help you finish. Talk a little bit about why you wrote this book. I, I wrote the book because this is probably, and I, I, I say that softly, it really is the most controversial part about sound grading practices or standards-based grading. We have this tradition where um, a student, in some elements would be penalized for a behavioral misstep. So yeah. late work is the example that we always use, right? You 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 submit an assignment, it's three days late, therefore you lose 30% of your score. And so obviously <clears throat> in the work around standards-based grading and focusing on making sure that grades are solely a reflection of the degree to which a student has met the learning goal, we try to factor out those behavioral missteps. Now, over the years, and this is particularly skews high school and middle school, mostly high school, there is always this sort of call for, um, you know, we need to teach these kids responsibility. We need to teach them about the real world. You're right um, about that in the book. I, love those, yeah, I do, about. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we can get to that for sure, because that yeah. that is a thorn in my side, that's for yeah. sure. But <clears throat> it was the idea, and I think there's a fair question that teachers uh, can ask. And that is, if we say to teachers, stop using zeros and stop using penalties and stop distorting achievement levels that way. A fair question for them to ask back is what should we do instead? Exactly. Yeah. Right. So I wrote grading from the inside out in 2016, and there's a chapter in that book called redefining accountability. And I go through sort of the idea of how we redefine it. What I mean by redefining accountability is accountability is an interesting word. It's kind of a loaded word. Yeah. Accountability for some people is code for punishment. Yeah. Right. Someone needs to be held accountable. 
that's code for someone needs to be fired. Yeah. Whereas what I'm suggesting is that we redefine accountability to mean I am answerable and all learning is mandatory. So it's accountability for the learning, not sure. accountability for the behavior. We'll hold them accountable for the behavior separately. Right. But so the idea, and, and, and Brian, it, it operates on this premise. If you give us a, a student a zero, let's say I'm a student in your class, Brian, and I have, we have a project due today and I haven't turned in the project for you. In fact, I haven't even started. And you say to me, you know, you have a policy that says, Tom, you know, I'm going to hold you accountable. It's an automatic zero until you submit that assignment. Even if you say to me, Tom, it's just a placeholder. When you get the project into me, I'll give you full credit for that. I'll grade it. That night I go home and I log into the online grade book and I see that you've already put the zero in there. And my grade has just gone from an 85 down to an 82 as yeah. a result of that one zero. Right. I still have a B and I have an 82. And if I'm okay with that 82 and I'm okay with still having a B, you'll probably never get that project from me. Yeah. Now, yeah. I often ask audiences, in what universe have yeah. I been held accountable? Exactly. I've just been let off the hook. So we want to shift the definition of accountability to mean if that project is essential evidence, we want to make sure that we get that essential evidence from the student. And so I go into the, in that chapter, I went into how we put systems in place to hold kids accountable. Now, yeah. Over the years, the question kept coming up and I thought, you know what, I should take that chapter and I should write a whole book about it to say, this is what we do yeah. and this is yeah. how it plays out. So that's where that's where the book came from. That was the inspiration for the book because that is at the secondary level, the most uh, controversial or point of tension uh, when it comes to this work around assessment and grading. Yeah, do you, do you still get pushback? I mean, with all the evidence that we have today, yes. And, and, and how much we we know. And, I, and and again, I'm reflecting back to when you talked about you were that teacher, you know, yeah. at oh, seven yeah. years, you were that teacher. If you had Tom Shimmer come in and talk to you back then, would you have listened or would you have been still that teacher? And if you were still that teacher, how do you reach that teacher? What year? 1992? No yes. Way. Yeah. I would have, I would have, I would have been the, um, I would have been the, uh, what Adam Grant calls the prosecutor. So I don't know if you've read the book, Think Again by Adam Grant, uh, organizational psychologist, but he says when we face change, we 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 should approach change like scientists and, and seek new knowledge and all that, but we don't. He says we slip into one of the other three modes, which is preacher, politician, or prosecutor. Uh, just very quickly, the preacher is the one that preaches their pet theories with no research behind them. The politician tries to make everybody happy and placate everybody. The pre the 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 prosecutor is the one that tries to poke holes. Yeah. And approaches already has their rebuttals prepared before the PD session. That would have been me. I would yeah. have been at the back of the room, arms folded, probably making some wisecracks to my colleagues about how ridiculous the speaker was. Yeah. Um, and that's why, you know, when you said earlier how, you know, life evolves, if I'm the same person, I'm definitely not the same person. It almost feels like a different person. When I remember who I was as a teacher in the early 90s, it almost feels like it wasn't me. It was yeah. someone else because I have changed so much. But yeah, I, I definitely um, I definitely wouldn't have been open to it. But but I think the way that you help people get open to it is you you have to. And this is very generic, so individuals are going to be different. But sure. one of the things I've learned over the course of my career is that making just the technical argument about a change is insufficient. Yeah. Change is more emotional than it is clinical. Sure. And so you can make all of the arguments you want, the technicalities. Here's what the research says. Here's all of that. Now, 
where things change for me as a speaker and a consultant and an author is not only having a firm grasp of all the technicalities about how grades get distorted and all of that. When I started years ago, and I'm talking, you know, 15 years ago, sure. When I started talking about the emotional impact of the choices we make, I often say to groups, you know, there's a human being on the other end of every assessment decision you make, and that human being is going to have an emotional reaction to the prospect of being assessed or whatever you decide to do in assessment. The question is, is that emotional reaction going to be productive? Like, do they see this as an opportunity or is it going to be something that's counterproductive? Do they see assessment as something to be feared? When I started tapping into that emotional side of assessment and realizing it for myself and then relaying that message to, to others, um, what I noticed is that that started to impact people. So just again, whenever you're trying to make change happen in any situation, we have to make both the technical and the emotional argument for why this is a more effective way to go. And that that is the difference when you have people, even the most hardened, armed, folded, yeah. they still care about their students and they want what's best for them. And if you can reach them emotionally, then you'll reach them technically. I think your your maturity around this and, and just your experience has, has taught you one that you are that teacher. So it's not a judgment, right? It's like, okay, this is a behavior. And so if you've evolved, you know that these people can evolve. And from, from what I'm hearing is you don't take it personally because you, again, you are that teacher. And the other piece is, um, you know, the technical piece, like you talked about, that's the head, but you got to do the other thing and touch the heart. Yeah. And you know, put those together, then that's a beautiful marriage and you can help more people move forward. Yeah. John, John Haidt, uh, who, uh, wrote the book, uh, The Happiness Hypothesis, uses the analogy in the book um, that that the it's like right changes like riding an elephant. Um, the rider is our intellect, and whenever the rider, whenever the elephant is doing what the rider wants, the rider thinks it's in charge. So if 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 the rider wants the elephant to turn right and the elephant goes right, the rider thinks it's in charge, the intellect. But if the rider wants to go right, but the elephant wants to go left, you're definitely going left. Yeah. So it's an analogy. I know it's not the best analogy. You know, riding elephants is a little outdated, but yeah. but the idea being that that the emotional side of change is going to definitely uh, have greater impact. So we have to remind ourselves that leadership is is really about reaching the emotions and making people feel that the human touches uh, that that shape. Uh, as Rosabeth Moss Cantor says, shape a positive emotional climate. We, you know, the structures are good. The systems are good. Daniel Goleman writes about this too, is that whenever we talk about leaders, sure. you know, we always talk about strategy and vision, but it really isn't that. It's the emotions. It's yeah. how they made us feel. Uh, and, and, but it's both. We have to have the technical side. Sure. So we have to know what we're talking about. But, but yeah, the emotional side to me was the, was the key. And I don't take it personally because I often say to people, I said this to an audience yesterday, Brian, I said to them, the difference between you and I is that I'm not smarter than you. I have a 20 year head start on you. This is my yeah. 20th year of being completely immersed in this assessment work. So yeah. I just have longevity. It doesn't mean that I know more than you. Back in 2003, 2004, 2005, I didn't know anything about assessment. I was just learning, building the plane as I was flying. I was doing what I could to make things happen. Um, and, and 20 years later, I'm here and I, and I feel like I have a good competence around assessment, but you have to be patient with people, right? Uh, urgency, 
Uh, this is a mantra I've often used, Brian, is, is urgency for the ideas, but patience with people. Yeah. Um, because we have to have the conversations, but we have to be patient. People have to unlearn some things and, and they get very defensive and they get emotional about, does that mean the 17 years of my career has been wrong and all that? And we have to help them navigate through all of that. Well, and I, that, that's perfectly said. And I think it's also important to, you know, for me, I always think about why did most people get into this profession? It was about emotion. It's because they, they want to change kids' lives. So that's an emotional, you know, kind of reaction to why I'm doing this work. Um, and so if you have all that emotion tied up in it, and then somebody says, well, you're doing, quote, doing something wrong, then you, like you said, you're going to get defensive. And so I think, you know, helping people, as you said, have time to to to, to process and to, to unlearn some things that they have entrenched into their their practices um, does take time. Yeah, and and part of it too is because very few of us have had any assessment and grading training. I mean, there's a lot of assessment training now. When I ask audiences, I'll say, "How many of you had a class on assessment in your in your training?" And a lot of, a lot more hands are going up now than they they used to. Right. But then I ask them this question: How many of you? How many of those classes spent more than one day yeah. on grading? And almost every hand drops. Yeah. And so because we because we had to make this up for ourselves and go into our autobiography, and most teachers were successful in school to some degree, um, we bring those practices and we take it very personally when someone questions them because we were the ones that decided. We don't typically do that with reading strategies because somebody comes along and says, hey, here's a more effective way to teach reading. Right. We go, okay, that's how we should teach reading. Yeah. But we get very emotional about our grading and our assessment practices because we weren't trained in it. So therefore we kind of made it up and, and we get very attached to them. We often, we often conflate our identities with our grading practices. Like sure. how I grade is not what I do. It's actually who I am. It's I'm how I forge a persona. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, I'm, I'm, it is very emotional for sure. Yeah, I, I had a professor in college one time says, he said, right the first day of class, he said, um, I only give 10% of the class A's. Yeah. And everybody's looking around like, oh my God, like he just shot us down right there. Like, okay, yeah. why should I try? I'm just going to try to get a B or a C. You know, yeah, just, that's yeah, the illusion of rigor, right? Yeah. Uh, the fewer kids that have A's, the, the more rigorous my class is. It's, it's kind of, it's, and that's, I mean, you and I went to college at a different era, uh, you know, a different generation, but uh, that era of sort of, uh, you know, bell curves and restrictions and all of that are just so misguided. Hey, in your book, you talk about this three-tier framework. You, you, you talk about assessment, you talk about the PLC at work process, and you talk about the RTI at work process. Can you talk a little bit about how you married those together um, and yeah. made sure that they were kind of seamless and, because they were? And I think sometimes people, yeah. these are separate things. And it's like, no, these are things that we need to use in concert with each other. Right, because the, the, the work around uh, accountability was in, in pockets, people would say to me, um, this is, but this is just one more thing we have to do. And I'm like, you're, you're actually perfectly aligned. And those three elements really help perfectly align. So I'll, I'll kind of work toward, you know, obviously the assessment part, right? We have to separate achievement. We have to have criteria. Uh, if we're going to teach kids to be responsible, self-directed, respectful, um, all of those different char characteristics or what some call the habits of learning or profile of a learner, although we have to have criteria, we have to be able to observe it. So the assessment part is, I think, pretty obvious. But here's the other part I said to people. If you've implemented the PLC at work structure, you've got your collaborative teams and your school yeah. is a PLC, you're guided by four questions. The first question is, what do we want kids to know and be able to do? 
Well, the answer to that question doesn't have to be academic. Yeah. Right. So what do we want kids to know and be able to do? We want them to learn to be responsible. How will we know that they're being responsible? What do we do for the kids who are still being irresponsible? And how do we transfer or support the kids who are already showing levels of responsibility? Those four guiding questions make you perfectly aligned to, to seamlessly work in this area. Now the RTI, PBIS, MTSS, three-tiered continuum is it's all the same fundamental. And what we have to understand is that when it comes to to anything we do, um, it's not going to work for everyone. So I often phrase it this way, Brian. I often say to people, when you're addressing this issue of late work, missing work, accountability, you're going to have to put systems in place that are not going to work for the students you're thinking of. Yeah. And what I mean by that is when we implement tier one supports, and I know you you know this well, but for, you, for your audience, as reminders, tier one supports, everyone receives tier one that the the most effective tier of intervention is prevention that's tier one but we know that our success threshold at tier one is about 80 percent or higher if we can get an 80 percent response rate or higher that really does help us redirect our our attention so if we can get success at 80 percent we're not happy with that but it does tell us if i get an 80 percent or 90% success rate, I direct my attention to the other 20%. But if we're getting a 50, yeah, what's that? I I think in your book, you said this before you go into tier two. Yeah. It takes the pressure off of teachers because teachers don't have to be perfect. Like they have to get everybody, you know, there the first time around. It sure does. Because when you like, and and I often talk about this with, with people, it's like, you can't just know about the three tiers. You have to live it. You have to understand that when you make a command of your class, you say, all right, everybody open up to page 76. We're going to get started on chapter 12 today. You should in your head immediately think to yourself about 80% of my kids are going to do that on first command. Right. Then I'm probably going to have to go over to a small group. Like this tier one, tier two, tier three can happen in 30 seconds. I can make a command of my class, go over to the group of four that's still talking. That's targeted group-based intervention for tier two. And then I might go over to that one student, pick up the textbook and open it up to page uh, 76 in chapter 12. That can happen in 30 seconds. So I think when you start to teach with the three-tiered framework in mind, again, it's not that we're happy with 80%. We'd like it to be higher because that's going to have a ripple effect. But you, it does take the pressure off and makes you, especially a new teacher, realizing that you're not less than as a teacher if not everybody follows your direction. It, it is, it, it's normal. The, the phrasing I use often, Brian, is that the, the framework, the three-tiered framework, which is really just a graphic organizer and thinking, but the three-tiered framework is anticipatory. Sure. By, by, by identifying tier two and tier three, there is an anticipation that tier one is not going to work for everybody. If we thought there was one strategy that could work for everybody, then we would do that. But because tier two and tier three are identified, there's an anticipation that some students will be unresponsive to those tiers, right? So tier one is a tier of prevention. So we're going to put systems in place. We're going to hold kids accountable. It's not going to work for the students we're thinking of, but we need to set the tone. We need to create an environment of excellence. Tier two is for those who are chronic in terms of repeated, like some students need longer to learn. Some students lack some skills, but some students have chronic, you know, challenges. And so we've, we need to be very targeted with those students. We often deliver that in a group-based model, not because tier two is required to be group-based, but because it's a more efficient delivery model. And especially Each- we want to make sure that if it's tier two, it's, and yeah. it's group-based, then it's 
it's on a particular skill. Like we Correct. don't have, no, have no, no, it's not groups. groups. It's all these groups different. with similar. Yes, they have similar needs, and that creates the efficiency. Right? right. It's each each tier is subsequently more labor intensive. So yeah. it's in our best interest to group kids with similar needs. So therefore, it's a more efficient delivery. You're absolutely right, like that. And then tier three is, of course, individualized or personalized, and that that we build. So tier two, we have a system that exists, and we fit the students into the system. Tier three is we build the system for the student. Again, more labor intensive. So it's in our best interest. Efficiency. If if people are worried about time, right? That's why we invest in tier one. But what's going to happen is, you're going to have a small group of students still be unresponsive and they'll need tier three supports. But the question is, are you going to be able to go deep with those students? Or because we've been loose at tier one, loose at tier two, have you inadvertently and falsely escalated the number of kids who appear to need tier three intervention? And now it's triage. Now we're just trying to service a, a huge volume of kids. So keeping this in mind, because what's interesting is when it's academic, we tend to have a lot of tolerance. Like I often say to people, when kids have an academic misunderstanding, our traditional responses or our typical responses are, hey, let me help you. Let me show you. Let me teach you, right? When a student has a behavioral misstep, our responses tend to be the exact opposite. It's, it's stop that. Don't yeah. do that. That's irresponsible. So yeah. why can't we, when a student has a behavioral misstep, why can't we say, let me help you. Let me show you. Let me teach you. That's the whole premise behind the book is... If we want kids to learn to be responsible, then we need to teach them. This is, and I'll, I'll finish. I know I'm being a bit long-winded, no, right? but, but I'll finish this thought. Great. When when we're when we're teaching, we're often teaching, but when we're teaching responsibility, we often do the opposite. Like when people say we're teaching them about responsibility, I say, well, what do you do? They say, well, penalize late work. Yeah. So what else do you do? We give them zeros. The way we approach responsibility traditionally is it's like this. I'll use an academic example to see if this makes sense to anybody. And I know it doesn't. I'm going to teach you math by punishing your inability to do math. Yeah. It, it doesn't that make makes sense. no it, sense. It, it, it's almost laughable, right? It's laughable. But then as soon as we bring it over into the behavioral realm, we yeah. say, we're going to teach you responsibility by punishing your irresponsibility. Yeah. And we yeah. just kind of look around at each other and go, yeah, that's how we've always done it. That's how it works. Yeah. It, we have to we have to at least be able to question that and challenge that. If we're going to teach them responsibility, then teach them what it means to be more organized in advance of a deadline. So the whole premise of the book is this. It's, it's not okay for kids to miss deadlines, but it's equally not okay for a teacher to distort the achievement level of that learner as a result of the lateness. We need to teach them the skills that they need so that they can be successful in college. They can be successful in life. So I'm with people when they say we need to teach them responsibility. It might be the method where we might disagree. Hey, when, when trying to rephrase this question in the, in the PLC at work process, when we have teams come together, around academic skills or anything that they've taught and they've assessed and they come back together and they have conversations around what student needs to have additional time support to master this essential you know, skill. Do we, have, um, do we have an opportunity when we talk about behavior skills to have teams come together um, and talk about, okay, in my class, these skills that we said are so essential only 60% of the students seem to be mastering these skills or, or demonstrating proficiency. Um, but in my colleague's class, it seems like 90%. Should we have that conversation? Because sometimes it's not the kids, it's the teachers 
and it's not it's not again i'm not indicting a teacher it might be the teacher's lack of um being able to uh teach those skills appropriately right yeah absolutely we 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 can talk about it i think there's a couple of things that we need to do in order to have meaningful conversations and i agree brian it's not an indictment it's not anything like that there's a big difference between a critique and a criticism right i mean critique we're just we're just looking at what's not working and whether it's not a blame thing it's just on this one skill maybe maybe they're they're another skill but just this one thing they're saying they're not they're not getting it for me can i i need some help how do I help? So, so yeah. talking about things, I think there's a couple of things we need. Obviously, we need to establish what we mean when we say certain things. We, when we say responsibility, we need some definition around it. We need to make sure that we are all clear and in agreement as to what that looks like and what the criteria is. What will we see? What is observable? What will we notice about a student who is responsible? So that's the first thing. We need specificity and yeah. clarity in terms of establishing criteria. So we all have a baseline in terms of what we're looking for. But the other part that I think often gets lost in these behavioral conversations is there's this kind of expression or saying um, that I learned years ago called explanatory fictions. And what an explanatory fiction is, is these almost hyperbolic uh, statements that don't really help with any planning or any goal setting. So for example, if I come into a meeting and I just say, oh my gosh, I've got all, these kids are just so hyperactive. Right. Well, hyperactive doesn't help. It's not measurable, right? So we would have to ask, what does that look like? And and then we want to drill down to a place where a teacher might say, well, you know, I got four or five kids in my class who seem to start five or six different things in a half an hour. Yeah. Right. We, we need, we need, he's hyperactive. He's, he's disruptive. Well, what does that look like? Because that's how you're going to measure success. If I can say, for example, I have a student in my class who initiates four different tasks within a 30 minute period of time. If I could reduce that to two, or if I could reduce that to four in an hour, that's progress. It's not the desirable, but it's definitely making progress. So when we speak to one another about our students, we want to speak not in these explanatory fictions, but we want to talk in ways that are specific and measurable so we can know whether or not we're having success with them. And that that to me is the key, is that the more specific you can talk about, and, and for all listeners and, and viewers right now, if you're ever asked to, and which many of you are, to sit in an IEP meeting or talk about students, whether it's academic or behavioral um, supports, be as specific as you can about what you're observing because these hyperbolic statements or these general explanatory fictions are not helpful in planning or setting goals or knowing whether or not a student is making. And the key is, Brian, we know what the end result will look like. It's the incremental steps along the way that become very hard to identify if we can't get specific about what the teacher's noticing to begin with. So specificity and criteria and then specificity in what we're observing. And that would make for a very productive conversation about how do you teach it? What do you do? How often do you interact with the students? Tell me what you're doing so I can try to replicate some of that because you clearly are having some success. And I'd love to replicate that success in my classroom. Love that. Hey, in your book, um, in the prioritizing and reporting on behavior attributes, um, chapter six, um, one of the things that that I think sometimes teachers will say is this like you said earlier this is just an, every, another thing to to you know take my time away from actually yeah. you know assessing and, and reporting on academics um and you have a couple you know different ways of doing it i, I like um i think it's six uh, figure 6.1 um and you talk about how you can 
um, not have them at the same time in terms of the report cards. He said, you, you said like the behavioral attributes maybe do it on a trimester basis. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because if, if, as you say, sometimes parents see behavior in academics on the same progress report, then they they don't prioritize the behavior um, information as much as they do the academic information. Yeah, it, it, it really is a choice. Um, I, I presented that as an idea yeah. because there is an upside and downside to both. Okay, so the idea of putting the separating the behavioral reporting from the academic reporting is that when that report is put in front or made accessible online, that that's the only thing that parents are focused on. So, of course, they'll give their attention to it and it'll raise its profile and its prioritization amongst families and all that. That's the upside. The potential downside with that is that teachers are going to feel like they're in a constant state of reporting because they just did the academic report card and right. now it's the behavioral report and then it's the academic report. So it, it really is a choice. The, but you're right. right. The downside of having it all on one report, you know, we do these epic report cards three, four times a year. And it's these monumental events that really burn teachers out. It ruins their weekends and the whole thing. Um, we've got to be more efficient with that for sure. So the downside of that is 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 the behavioral elements get lost. The upside is that we're not in as much of a cycle of reporting. Sure. So I think schools have to decide what is most effective and efficient for their system. Uh, but But here's the thing, Brian. If we want students to take, I often hear this from people, you know, Tom, the kids don't take that behavioral stuff seriously. Well, part of the reason they don't take it seriously is because we don't give it enough attention and we don't prioritize it. What adults give their attention to is what kids will think is important. So we have to give it the attention. And if we can raise its profile by either separating or maybe repositioning it on the report card, like the, the real estate on the report card is quite valuable. Exactly. And if it's near the top or if it's, you know, you, you, you make a lot of statements by what you position on a report card. Kind of so like when you go into a grocery store, how correct. they like different products, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think it's a choice, but I do, I do like that idea because I do think the upside is that three times a year, the only quote unquote report that a student would be or a, a family would be looking at is the one about the student's habits of learning or their behavioral attributes. And I think that's favorable. I think there would be some, some positive to that. So what I would say to principals or teachers that are thinking about that model of separating out the reporting, we have to make sure there's efficiency in how we do that because we don't wanna burn people out uh, just in this constant state of reporting. Now we've talked a lot about you know teachers and um, students, but I, I think the other piece is how do we help parents understand this? Um, yeah. Because just sending them a, a progress report with this new information on it, yeah. they're going to say, "Well, what is this?" So, do we, you know, do this through parent-teacher conferences, through back-to-school nights, all these, you know, opportunities for parents to learn about how we're going to separate and really pay attention to, you know, behavior. Um, I think it's important, but you know, do you have any other ideas on how we do this with parents? Yeah, I, I, I think we have to be, um, we have to make sure that, um, well, let me put it this way. The more information you make available to parents, the more efficient the reporting can be. Yeah. So if we have on our website, we have, here are the, you know, three to five habits of learning that we're really focused on. That's, that's not the only ones we'll ever talk about, but right. those are the ones we're going deeper with, right? We're going deep on these four. We provide them with the criteria or the rubrics that we're using. We provide them with, here's actually how we teach them. So we show them, we link up the process for how we teach. This is our, our rotation. We teach every Monday, there's a mini lesson on these habits of learning. And so the more detail that you provide, the more detail you provide to your families, 
then your reporting system can be quite efficient. They go, oh, I see respect, responsibility, self-directedness, collaborative. You know, they'll they'll just look at that and go, oh, okay, I see where you are because I've had access to all the other information that was made available to me. Yeah. If you don't do that front end loading, then you're probably going to have to put more on the reporting, the report, I call it a report card, but it's not really an academic report card, but I put it on the behavioral report. And that's going to create some inefficiencies because as that document expands and gets longer and parents are going to have to read more it, you know, again, it's, it's probably something that we have to be realistic about how much time it's not that people don't care about their kids. They do. We would all say, well, isn't your, isn't your child, isn't an hour worth your child? Yes, it is. But most people don't spend an hour on the report card. Exactly. So we want to be efficient for the family. So I think, I think the smartest thing to do and the most effective thing to do is make sure that parent teacher night, open houses, website, student planner, yeah. The process for how we teach these habits of learning is well laid out and made very clear so that you can just reference that so that the report can be an efficient delivery model. Yeah. Um, this has been great, Tom. I, I really appreciate it. I have one more question um, sure. about your book, and then we're going to wrap because I know you have some things to do. And um, But I do appreciate your your time this morning. In your book, you talk about this idea of ensuring that norms are culturally expansive. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because um, I, I think sometimes when we create some of these um, behaviors or we, we identify some of these behaviors, um, depending on what kids we're talking about and where cultures are coming from, yeah. some of the behaviors may be to us, I mean, to, and you talk about the, the white Eurocentric view, may sure. be outside the norm, but in their own culture, it is the norm. Right. I have to give credit to Zaretta Hammond. Um, She is a brilliant woman. And I learned this from her because in having her on my podcast, I asked her a very simple question, which is, Zaretta, if we're going to be culturally responsive in our schools, what does a school do when they have some of the overseas schools I work with, Brian, have 65, 70 cultures represented in their schools? Yeah. So I said, how does how does a teacher or a school attend to those cultures? She said, you can't. But here's what you do. You focus on cultural archetypes. And I said, okay, what does that mean? And in her book, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, she does a brilliant job. Uh, honestly, she's just, I mean, I, I can't speak highly enough about Zaretta. Yeah. Um, All the podcasts. She, yeah, I mean, she's she's amazing. And and what, what I learned was, you know, the two cultural ar- archetypes. There's the cultures that emphasize the written tradition, and then there's the cultures that emphasize the oral tradition. That doesn't have a ton to do with the behavioral side, but academically from an assessment perspective. So there's an assessment derivative of this as well. Right. But then on the other side, there's the cultures that emphasize the individual, and there's cultures that emphasize the collective. That's the say x access or y access that i was focusing on right so in school for example if i if i come from a culture where we emphasize the collective when someone is struggling i help them yeah. in school we call that cheating yeah and that's because most of the white eurocentric lens of school comes out of an individual emphasis the emphasis on the individual yeah. so what i what i want schools to do and I, and I don't brian pretend to be an expert in this area but it's a field that i i think is very important for us to talk about which is the fact that when you look at most let's just break it right down when you look at most school rules they really come from the lens of sit down be quiet don't disrupt it really does emphasize the individual. Right. And I think that schools will be wise to audit their expectations or their school rules to say one of two things. One is 
where do we have some opportunities to emphasize the collective? I'm not saying cheating is okay. Okay. Right. So don't, please don't misunderstand. Could we expand our expectations to say there are times where we can emphasize the collective, right? Are there times where we're not? So we either provide the outlet by talking more talk time, more conversation time, telling our stories, things that really do emphasize the collective, or if it's something that we really can't change, like cheating, Maybe we can just tone down our response when a student who is from that a culture that emphasizes the collective, we sure. don't have to be so harsh about it because we have to understand where that student is coming from. They looked over and they said, saw someone struggling and they wanted to help them. It yeah. wasn't malicious in its intent. So I think that lens of, of just doing one of two things, either expanding what we say, well, and, and it really comes down to this, Brian, what do we, what do we mean by good behavior in school? Right. That has been traditionally defined as, you know, good behavior. And then there's derivatives, right? Dress codes, sure. um, hairstyles, yeah. all of those things have been defined through that very narrow white Eurocentric lens. Cause that's the tradition of North American schools came out of the churches of Europe in the middle ages. Like we, we could trace this stuff back. So to, 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 to at least have a conversation to say, let's look at our expectations. Where are we too culturally narrow? Yeah. Where can we expand? And if we can't expand, can we look at how we respond to what we deem to be missteps and maybe not get so over the top in how we approach the redirection of students and the reteaching of students that, yes, we want you to help people. We want you when you, but in this environment, in a testing environment or in an assessment environment, it isn't okay to just lean over and help somebody in that situation. So we coach them and we teach them and we show them compassion and we empathize or show them understanding that we understand where they're coming from and we know what their intent was or we appreciate that their intent wasn't malicious. So we either expand what we mean by good behavior or and or we begin to look at how we respond to those situations where there is some cultural fuzziness in terms of, you know, it isn't just about the individual, just about the collective, but there's some gray areas there where we could be a little bit more, say, compassionate and a little bit more understanding about what, what's going on. Again, just like you just said, it's about understanding. You know, I had a, somebody talked to me um, not long ago about um, having students in their class call out um, mm -hmm. And every time they were calling out, and most of the students who were calling out were um, African American students. Yeah. And then one parent came in because she she called home, and one parent came in and said, you, "You know, in our black churches, when the pastor is speaking, it is actually a good thing for us, the 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 people in the in the pews, to call out and affirm that speaker. That's what we do." that person had no clue. And so just talking about, again, having an understanding of different cultures, really, and I'm not saying all Black people do that, but I'm just saying in that instance, instance, it really was like an aha to that person. That person was like, I had no idea. And this is part of their cultural you know, experience. Absolutely. It's, uh, it, it's, it's just trying to, rather than being, you know, we're so often quick to jump to the punitive yeah. instead of, instead of asking questions and finding out, you know, what, what, where did this come from? And what were you thinking? And just help me understand. And, and as a teacher or as a principal, um, you can learn a lot and, and be open to learning from your students sure, sure. about what is, what is a cultural norm for them yeah. and, and how that, that plays out. Um, 
and you, and you learn to appreciate that and you learn to embrace it. And, uh, um, I think that's, that's part of our growth as, as educators and as human beings. Exactly. It's called Redefining Student Accountability, everybody. You got to get this book. It's an awesome book. Um, before we go, you have a podcast that is just blown up. You have, <laughs> I looked on the other day, I think you, how many um, episodes have you gotten out, gotten to? Like 100 and- 108. 108 episodes. Over yeah. 100. That's just amazing. And so- yeah, 108 episodes. Um, I'm just grateful for everyone that's chosen 100. I think it's like we're up to like 120,000 downloads or whatever. So that's amazing. Uh, I'm really, uh, I'm, I, you know, I, I love, it's, it's really hard to do now with all the writing projects and things like that. I've had to sort of pull back. You know, I started the podcast like 25,000 other people during COVID. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was easier to do when we were stuck at home. And now with the traveling and I'm on the road for, you know, a couple of weeks at a time and trying to schedule interviews and doing solo episodes, it's become more challenging, but I do, I do love doing it. And um, I, I have a lot of appreciation for the listening audience. I, I have a very loyal listening audience. My numbers are pretty consistent each week. So that tells me there's people that keep coming back. So I, I, I really appreciate that. You do a great job. And I think I Thank told you. you a long time ago that, you know, you helped me get through my exercise on, on the Stairmaster. Um, <laughs> That's right. Almost I week. remember you, those pictures you'd send me when yes. you'd be on the Stairmaster, the treadmill or whatever. And you'd be like, yeah, another episode of the Tom yep. Schiffer podcast. It, it, so it, I appreciate that, Brian. Yeah. And, and likewise, you know, to reciprocate uh, these conversations that you're having are, are, uh, are wonderful, impactful. I know the, the viewers really appreciate um, just the, I know you've had Anthony on, you've had so many other great, great guests on. So I'm just, I'm just honored to be a part of that because I know that uh, the, the people you've had on, on, on your conversations uh, with, with Brian are, are top notch. And so uh, thank you for, for inviting me. Well, I appreciate that time. And, and as I say, at the end of each one of my podcasts, um, again, I shared this at my, my dad's funeral three years ago, um, that African proverb, as I go, I am wearing you. And, you know, all the people that I have you know, coming, you know, contact throughout my life, uh, people have helped me, I am wearing them. And, you know, with your, and again, we, we talked about this before, we've never met in person, but I feel like I've, I've known you for my entire life, you know, but I, know. I think just, just your, your passion, your grace, your humility, um, your wisdom, kindness, um, you just have like a general goodness about you. Uh, and just all the people that you're helping, uh, including me. Um, and so I am wearing Tom Shimmer, of course, as I go and do whatever I do, um, your work on assessment, um, your new book, but all the things that you've done just help me become a better educator and a better person. So I appreciate that so much. Thank you, Brian. That's that's very kind of you to say. Um, we all learn from each other, um, and and there's things about your work uh, around, you know, the influences that we both had from Yvette Jackson, but the work that you do in terms of deepening the idea that all kids are gifted and we should provide them with that. I, I've learned a ton from you as well. So yes, we've never met in person, but I feel like, I feel like we're friends. I feel like we know each other. And uh, I love the idea of just continuing to learn from one another, learn from everybody who we come into contact with. And uh, that's a, that's a wonderful proverb. So I love that. Yep. So thanks for coming on a conversation with Brian and we'll see you very soon. All right. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Tom. Subscribe to A Conversation with Brian on my YouTube channel and Spotify.